Now let us turn together this evening to the scripture reading. And there are two passages that we have in mind together from the scriptures of the New Testament. First of all, the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 15, and we are reading verses 1 through 8. And then we will be turning to Paul's epistles to Timothy, as we read in 1 Timothy, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8, where we read the following words. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. And if you turn with me to First Timothy chapter 6, we will just read verses 12 and 13 only, First Timothy 6, verses 12 and 13, where Paul exhorts young Timothy in the following words, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you, and so forth. May God indeed bless to our understanding these several passages of his own inspired word. Thanks be to him. Doctrine. Creed, catechism, these words are guaranteed almost certainly to produce a reaction among Christians in the age in which we live. These words, I would hazard a guess, would be the subject very often of controversy among many professing Christians in many denominations today. In fact, if one is known as a so-called doctrinal preacher, that one is often looked upon in these days with a certain amount of distrust. And if a father is so diligent as to feel that his children should be catechized regularly in the truths of the scripture, there are Christians who would look askance at him and askance at such a practice as that. And if one should happen to be a member of what is called a consistently confessional church, then 
the accusation is often made that such and such a person must surely feel that he has all the truth of God. Now, why should this be? And it's certainly very unfortunate in these days that we are living in that men should placard by contrast the slogan, no creed but Christ. Therefore, we don't need any creedal statements. We don't need any great doctrinal affirmations of our faith to have Christ and him alone is all that is necessary for any Christian to possess. And any addition is simply superfluous. Others today view doctrinal commitment as an obstacle to ecumenical union between the churches. Still others view doctrinal concern as simply ecclesiastical presumption. Who are we to think that we can know the mind and the will of God, that God whose very being is clothed in mystery and in majesty? Now, what is surely interesting to us this evening is that in contrast to other ages and other men, our age is so sadly lacking in many ways, and our churches are so sadly lacking in many things. For instance, as one reads through the great confessions of faith, of history, the Augsburg Confession, the Heidelberg Confession, the Belgic Confession, the 39 Articles of the Church of England and the family of Anglican churches throughout the world, the Westminster Confession, the Savoy Declaration of Faith, and so we could go on, we suddenly realize that the men who framed these great doctrinal statements were giants in their understanding of the word of God. And that so often modern men today in our churches are but midgets and pygmies by comparison. When, for instance, you compare our 20th century two-page doctrinal statements with the great creeds of the church in history, you understand why professing Christians today are being tossed around on every wind of doctrine. When you compare the chaffy, no creed but Christ, uh, cleverness of our day, with the sound, deep-running, doctrinal preaching of past centuries, you begin to understand why the church has become experience-centered. When you compare the shallow, fill-up-the-time frivolity of so much teaching even in our Sunday schools in this age, when you compare that with the sober, evangelical, catechetical indoctrination that used to be given in the churches of a previous age, you can understand why Christians in the understanding of their faith are so weak by comparison. Now you see, these words with which I began this exposition this evening, doctrine, creed, catechism, are not things that we should avoid or eschew or run away from as frightened men and women. If we really understand their importance, we will want to embrace them. We will want to come into the position that our forefathers knew and practiced so well of being doctrinal Christians from beginning 
to end in our Christian experience. And so the purpose of the exposition this evening is to address the question, why have a creed? Why do we, as Presbyterians particularly, possess a confession? Why, especially, do we as Presbyterians hold fast to the Scriptures alone and the Westminster Confession of Faith next to the Scripture as the summary of what the Scriptures truly and fully teach? And as time permits then, this evening I want to answer that question in three different ways. Why do we have a confession? Because of scriptural precedents, because of historical antecedents, because thirdly of practical advantages. And I want you to follow through with me under these three headings this evening. First of all, then, why do we have a confession of faith? We have it because there are sound and solid scriptural precedents for our having such a confession as this. In other words, we must start this evening by asking ourselves, what has scripture to say regarding confessions of faith? What importance does scripture put upon confessing one's faith? Is there any warrant in Scripture for drawing up confessional and doctrinal statements of what Christians believe? And I answer most affirmatively that there is. And I provide the answer for you this evening by looking at several Scripture passages just quickly in passing. First of all, the one that we read from this evening, 1 Timothy 6, verse 13. If you have your Bible open, you might want to turn to it again tonight. Where we are told in verse 13 of the sixth chapter of Paul's first letter to Timothy that Jesus Christ witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate. And so Paul, you remember, goes on to charge the young Timothy with his great responsibilities in the island of Crete, but he too must be faithful in holding the confession that is undoubtedly his. Jesus Christ witnessed a good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now this is very significant and interesting because it shows us at once that our Lord Jesus Christ both believed in a confessional statement and is on record at least on one occasion as having made such a confessional statement. And the background, of course, is at the end of the four Gospels, when you remember he was arraigned before Pontius Pilate, and it was on that occasion that he thus made, as it were, his confession. Are you a king, said Pontius Pilate to him? And he said, Thou sayest it. In other words, a confession that he was indeed king of the Jews. And we read in John's Gospel in chapter 18 that he went on to say that for this purpose he had come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And then you remember in the same passage when Pilate had indicated that he, Pilate, had the authority either to release or condemn Jesus. Jesus said to him, you have no authority but that which is given to you from above. 
Now, in that confessional statement of Jesus, there are three remarkable things that he is bearing witness to concerning his own divine person. When he said, I am the king of the Jews, it was a reference, obviously, to royalty, to his kingship, that he is the great king of God's people. When he said, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth, what was this but a profound confessional statement that he was also the prophet of God's people and that his office was indeed both then and in the heavenly ministry that he now exercises to lead his people into all truth. And when he bore testimony to the limits of Pilate's authority, either to deliver or condemn him, what was he bearing witness to but to his priestly work that it was of divine necessity that he should be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and be raised again. And you see in that one reference in 1 Timothy 6 verse 13, in the confession to which Jesus witnessed, there is clearly the substance of Jesus' own ministry in the world. But there's a second passage that I would refer to this evening in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, where you remember the great words occur, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Again, a reference to a confession in Scripture. Now, in order to be a Christian, we must know about Christ. In order to be a Christian, we must believe certain things about Christ. And therefore, in order to be a Christian, according to this text, we must be able to make some kind of confession concerning him, and a confession, moreover, of our own faith in him. So you can see not only in the life of Jesus, but by necessity in the experience of every Christian, there is a place for a confession of faith, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ in the heart and believing that God has raised him indeed from the dead. Now the third passage, of course, is that other one from which we read this evening in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8 where Paul, you remember, says, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to such and such who were witnesses. There, clearly, is the substance of the gospel. There clearly is the apostolic confession of the faith that Paul had first delivered to the Corinthians years before and now in which he was exhorting them to stand fast. So without pursuing the matter any further, why do Presbyterians hold fast to a confession of faith, to a summary of Christian doctrine alongside the inspired and inerrant scriptures? They do so, beloved, because there are scriptural precedents for doing it. And the advantages, I think, should be clear to us all this evening. But therein is a means of identifying the church 
in the world. But I can come to the unbeliever who says, why are you a Christian? What things make you a Christian? What do you believe in this evening? And we can go to 1 Corinthians 15 and say in the words of the Apostle Paul, but I believe that Christ died for my sins according to the Scriptures, that he was raised again from the dead according to the Scriptures, and so forth. And we are identifying ourselves as members of the Christian church in the midst of an unbelieving and hostile world. Another advantage is obvious, isn't it? But this is a means of popular instruction in the church, that we can summarize our faith in a number of statements and commend that faith to those who are learning the Christian faith, to our children, to others, unbelievers who are seeking to come into the church. And another advantage again is that here begins to be the framework for church discipline. Those who make thus and thus our confession are separated from the world, are now in the church, have been called out by God into the fellowship of his people. And those that do not make that confession are outside of the church. And therefore you have a framework immediately within these precedents for church discipline. So there are scriptural precedents for having a confession of faith. But my second point this evening is that there are historical antecedents for it as well. Now it seems to me in this age in which we live, there are many Christians that almost take pride in being ignorant of church history. And I'm always amazed by this. Because surely if we believe that the supreme acts of God have taken place for us within the confines of sacred history, biblical history, we must also believe that the acts of God are continuing through his church. No longer in the infallible sense of scriptural history and scriptural accounts, but certainly in the sense that the Holy Spirit is continuing to cast new light upon his truth that has been once for all delivered to his saints. But the church is learning in every age more and more of how it should understand biblically what is written in the oracles of God. Therefore, the book of church history should also instruct us. And instruct us it does among other things, in the need for creedal formulations and confessional statements. Because, you see, what we notice is happening through the ages of the church, the Christian church, is that whenever the church was faced by doctrinal error, not surprisingly it was led by the Holy Spirit to formulate standards of orthodoxy, to bar the way against the intrusion of error into the church, of wrong doctrines among the people of God. And you begin to see that process right from the earliest ages. The so-called Apostles' Creed that I have reminded you recently was never, of course, authored by any apostle. It came from the second century but it's one of the earliest statements formulated by the church as a barrier to the entrance of error into the church. 
I believe in God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, right through to the resurrection of the dead and the return of Christ. There were many other very short creeds, Ignatius of Antioch, around the year A.D. 107, the Creed of Irenaeus, one of the Church Fathers, around A.D. 180, the Creed of Tertullian, the year 200, Cyprian of Carthage, around the year 250 A.D., Novation of Rome in the similar time. And most of these creeds were only 100 to 200 words in length, They had nothing about the Trinity or the person of Christ or the plan of salvation. They were simple creeds, many of them, the Davidic descent of the Lord Jesus Christ, a little bit about creation, a little bit about the church, but nothing in detail. But as you read on, you begin to find that as serious errors arose in the church, as we have seen in Acts 15, they were already in danger of arising in the New Testament church. As they arose, the Holy Spirit led the church and led believers to formulate increasingly specific confessions of their faith or creedal statements. And as Arius arose, one of the great early heretics in the church, denying the divinity of Jesus, the fathers of Nicene in the year A.D. 325 were led to make the statement that is still a classic statement of the divinity of Christ and his two natures and the doctrine of the Trinity. And then the Chalcedonian Creed in the year 451 and then on through the Middle Ages in that abyss of Roman ignorance and superstition from which we were delivered by the Reformation, there came a flourishing again at the time of the Reformation of great confessional and creedal statements. And the Reformers saw the need for sound biblical instruction in concise form to create that barrier and that bar to error coming into the church to define the truth in such a way that there was no place for heresy to be held. And you have at the time of the Reformation the Lutheran Augsburg Creed or Confession in 1530 and the first Swiss Confession in 1536, the French Confession, 1559, the Scots Confession in 1560, the Belgic Confession, 1561, the 39 Articles of the Church of England, 1563, and all of these subordinate to Scripture as the supreme and infallible Word of God, but statements that drew out succinctly what the Scriptures taught and laid these out in the face of prevailing errors and said, this is the truth that Christians believe grounded in the word. And these are the errors, therefore, by implication, that we reject and abhor. And then you come to the Westminster Confession, the finest, maturest statement of them all. Let me remind you briefly, before we close this section on historical antecedents of the glories of that confession, it took... Four years, almost, in the formulation of it from 1643 to 1647. There are more than 1,500 scripture texts adduced 
to prove that it is based upon the word of God, and almost all of them, with very few exceptions, are very wisely and carefully chosen. For more than 1,100 sessions, the Westminster theologians or pastors or ministers, as you may care to call them, met over those four years. And in those 33 chapters that comprise the Westminster Confession of Faith, beginning with the order of divine revelation, the doctrine of scripture itself, and ending with the glorious second coming of Christ, you have every significant doctrine of the word covered in one way or another. And that confession of faith has lasted us three and a half centuries, 350 years, without growing old or waxing into decay. Now you see, the beautiful thing is this, that with true biblical confessional statements, they never abandon what has gone before. All the fruits of the early church father's study of scripture is gathered up into the Westminster Confession. The great truths of Nicaea are there. The great truths of the Council of Chalcedon and the two natures of Christ are there. And the beautiful thing about biblical confessional formulation is that they never establish new doctrines. They simply draw on what has gone before, clarify it, express it perhaps in better language, deal with the issues that have arisen in their own day, so that there is a continuing, ongoing process of gathering in the whole truth that God has revealed to his church always from the word of God. Sadly, in our own day, whenever you hear the cry, for the need for confessional reformulation, what is usually in mind is abandoning what has gone before, diluting it, watering it down, adding to it in some unscriptural way. But as we can see from the church in the strongest periods of its life when it has made these great creedal statements, the value of confessional reformulation is gathering in what has gone before, enriching it, supplementing it from Scripture, facing the new areas of danger, but never abandoning what has already been put in place. And beloved, if you ever hear today, as you will hear, the cry to revise confessional standards, you should be looking for a fuller statement, not a lesser one, a larger one not a shorter one, because that is the nature of the Holy Spirit's work in illumining and enlightening his people in the understanding of his truth. There are historical antecedents for our study of the confession of faith. Now, thirdly, and this is the point on which I'm going to close this evening with several sections to it, there are practical advantages in studying the confession of faith alongside Scripture. Now, let me mention, as time permits, just five of a number of practical advantages. First of all, in studying the confession of faith, there is a concise biblical summary of scriptural teaching. Let me put it very practically to you this way. If you have an inquirer coming to you and saying, well, Mr. Farron, 
or Mr. Jones or whoever it may be. I'm interested in what you Presbyterians believe. I want to start attending your church. But can you tell me in concise form, what do Presbyterians believe? And you can take your Bible and you can thrust it uh, to that person and say, we believe all of this, the 66 books of God's word and God speaking in all of them. Now that will be somewhat daunting to an inquirer to read the whole Bible, especially if he's not really sure whether he's a Christian in the first place. But when you can take the confession of faith to an earnest inquirer and say to him, see here, in these 33 short chapters of this confession of faith, some of them with only one or two sections, this is the summary of what we believe. And we believe it to be taken in full from the scriptures themselves. What an advantage you have. A concise biblical summary of scriptural teaching. And we can say with every confidence, as I reminded you, that this confession is faithful to the infallible word. We can say that it excels all others that have been produced by the hand of man in terms of its accuracy and its balanced commentary upon the word of God. We can say that we ourselves have been profoundly impressed with the abundance of scriptural support for every single one of its statements. And my friends, if you hear the comment, oh, it's out of date, oh, it's too theological, oh, it's so elaborate, oh, it's scholastic, we should say in the words of G.I. Williamson in response, no one, but no one, has yet produced a confession of faith that even rivals this one in point of faithfulness to the scriptures. Now, the second advantage is this. It's a concise summary of what the church confesses. It's the church's faith in summary. And in church history, we see, as I reminded you, the way in which the Holy Spirit has led his people into a fuller knowledge of biblical truth. As I said last Sunday evening, the great creeds are landmarks that stand out like a great formation of rock across the intervening centuries. They stand out, landmarks, along the way. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene and Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, and so on, as we are led more and more into the fullness of the understanding of God's truth. And we can say that the ripest flowering of all the creedal statements of the church is found without any question in the Westminster documents, the confession of faith, the larger and shorter catechism, the form of church government. It was Dr. J.G. Machen who said that all real doctrinal advance proceeds in the direction of greater precision and greater fullness of doctrinal content. And at the Reformation, we may bless God that that entire body of scriptural truth that was gloriously rediscovered as the Holy Spirit was poured out in a spiritual awakening next only to the day of Pentecost, all that fullness of truth gathered in that rich age when God's Spirit was moving mightily, was taken and preserved and formulated in 
the confession of faith. Does the question arise, do we need new creeds? Well, as I said to you, we will never need less than is here, though we may need more as new heresies and new errors yet arise within the church. Now, the third advantage, then, is that it is a compendium of Christian experience. Now, in our studies of the Westminster Confession of Faith, if the only result is that we have an intellectual knowledge that has increased, may God help us. I say that with reverence. May God Almighty help us. Because whatever we have learned or will learn, we have not learned the value of the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was given, my dear friends in Christ, not as an intellectual stimulus to us that we might see how logically and perfectly the biblical faith fits one piece into the next like some glorious jigsaw puzzle. That will happen and it should happen. And a mark of growing in grace is the ability to relate one doctrine that you thought was out there to this other doctrine that you thought was out there. But in fact, the two are indispensably interlinked. And one of the beautiful things about the biblical and reformed faith is the very logical nature of its structure. But you see, the main reason for providing the confessions of faith at the time of the Reformation might be that the man of God and the woman of God reading these creedal statements can see what has happened in his own life with far greater power and clarity than ever before. For instance, the new convert, newly come to Christ rejoicing in that grace of God by which he's able to see as he never saw before. Once I was blind, he says, but now I see. He doesn't understand fully what has happened to him. He couldn't be expected to. But he comes to Scripture, and he reviews Scripture in the light of the Westminster Confession of Faith with its beautiful, succinct summary of biblical doctrine. And he comes to chapter 6, and he reads there of the fall of man, that man has become utterly indisposed to all good. And he suddenly realizes that he didn't contribute anything to his salvation. It was God, by grace, from beginning to end, that did it all. He comes to chapter 3 of the confession that speaks of salvation, traced back, ultimately, to the sovereign election of God in eternity past. And he begins to realize, it wasn't me that chose Christ, although I did choose to follow him. But that choice was only possible because of God's primary choice of me in all eternity. But we are saved because of his predestinating and electing grace, and he did it all in love. Or he comes to chapter 10 of the confession and he sees afresh how a dead sinner is actually brought to faith in Christ. It wasn't that I desired him. It was because of the effectual call of God by his spirit working through the word of God that enabled me to do what I never otherwise could have done, to desire to follow Christ, to see him as my savior, 
to forsake my sin, to repent, to believe in him. All of that is the gift of God and it comes by the effectual call of God to me through his word and spirit. Well then, you see, it's a compendium of Christian experience. And as you read the confession, I exhort you, I plead with you this evening, do not look upon it as an intellectual exercise in which we are engaging, but in an examination, in a God-centered way, of a living experience of the Lord. Now, the fourth advantage is this. It safeguards the orthodoxy of the church. You probably know this evening, all of you, and I trust you do, that when someone becomes an officer in the Presbyterian Church of America, we are bound over to certain oaths of office, very solemn vows undertaken in the presence of God and of his people. And one of those vows binds us over to accept all that is taught in the confession of faith as the very doctrines that we believe and are bound and called upon to preach. We are required to assent to these doctrines, to teach according to this standard, the scriptures always being our supreme and final standard. But next to them, we are bound over to the subordinate standard that succinctly summarizes all. Now, it's very interesting that a member of the church is not required to make that affirmation because he is not normally in a teaching position in the church. He does not normally have responsibility through the word for the eternal well-being of men and women. And it is most fitting, therefore, that officers of the church should be bound over explicitly to be faithful dispensers of the whole counsel of God, to deal diligently in the oracles of God, because the very orthodoxy of the church is at stake. And it's well known that the process of liberalism, theological liberalism, and departure from the truth first came into the church when the teaching and ruling elders of the church abandoned their sacred vows to be under the authority of God and of his word. And our seminaries be, became infected with that theological liberalism and error, and eventually the whole church became infected and almost destroyed by that insidious influence. It is then a barrier to protect the orthodoxy of the church. Now, fifthly and finally, it is surely a remedy for the church's condition, and this is what I touched upon last Sunday evening. What is the present state of the church of God congregation? Is it not lamentable in many ways? Is there not ignorance even of first principles widely abroad among the denominations? Isn't there great doctrinal confusion and uncertainty in this age? Isn't the church so often taken up with novelty? Isn't it, as I said to you at the beginning of this exposition, so much experience-centered rather than doctrinally-centered? And aren't so many of our seminary graduates even ignorant of the basic teaching of the shorter catechism that was produced, you remember, for those of lesser ability than others, for children. 
the summary of the first principles of our faith. And what is the reason for this state if it is not long neglect of the heritage of our faith? You know, it was C.H. Spurgeon in one of his great expositions of Scripture, I believe at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, who said to his congregation, there is more to be learned from the formulations of the Westminster Confession of Faith than from many volumes of theological literature in our day. And we can repeat that. And we can underscore it and we can say amen and amen to that statement. So you see, this document is not for theologians. It's for the whole company of God's people. For the humble heart. For that humble heart may become a solid theologian. For our children even. But as they sit under its teaching in the light of scripture, their young minds might be influenced by the work of the Holy Spirit, to grasp at least some of the great doctrines to which we are committed. Just imagine the effect on the church today if we came back into the era of our forefathers where the humble plowman or the garage mechanic, as we would say today, and the factory worker were as good theologians as the seminary professor and the teaching elder of the church, and there was a day when that was true. Let's seek again, beloved, the faith of our fathers, as the joy and strength of our souls. Let's come to these studies to rediscover the riches of the confession of faith, and let's see it as the remedy for all the ignorance of the age, the doctrinal confusion, the church taken up with novelty, and so experience-centered. Let's not put it above Scripture. It was never intended to be above Scripture. But use it as an aid to our better understanding and our greater conviction and assurance that Christ is ours. As we study the confession, let us take Christ, as it were, with both our hands and say as we go through its wonderful teaching, yes, he is really ours. And we are really his. What a treasure, beloved, this is. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we do indeed pray that the fruit of these studies may abound in all our lives, that we may grow in godliness, that we may grow into maturity, that we may grow in understanding, but not only these things, that we may grow in experience, knowing that this great document alongside Scripture has been written so that the experience of God's people might be enriched in a most heavenly way. And may that indeed be our experience in these days. For Jesus' sake, amen.